You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. story, I think, is I told this a couple of times to some of our men's groups, but it's important for what we're going to talk about tonight. But So my wife and I get saved 23 years ago in the very first church that we're at, that we got saved at. Um, one of our first two or three Sundays that we were there, um, our pastor was a third generational pastor, and he and his wife went out of town for a vacation, and his dad, who was also a pastor, filled in for him. And the first words out of his mouth were from the pulpit, I need to tell everybody one thing right now. My son, Wesley, he's a liar. And I'm like, oh my God, what have we gotten into? Oh my, what is, what is going on? You know, and he, it, it freaked us out. And, you know, for me especially, not growing up with a male role model, it was very difficult for me to trust a man in general. But all of a sudden, this first thing I hear about my new pastor is that he's a liar. And the point he was making was, once we all calmed down from all of the gasping, he said, now that I've got your attention, he said, he said, we all lie. And he said, the reason I said that is that you and I need to know this for ourselves. He said, Wesley's not God. I'm not God. I'm not infallible. He's not infallible. And we all need accountability. And you need to know this thing for yourself backwards and forwards. Amen? And so that's going to be important later on. Um, and so once we got saved, uh, for me, once the initial joy of, uh, of knowing this forgiveness and the salvation in Christ and what that was, um, I immediately had a lot of regret and shame because I was 30 years old at the time. And all I thought about was, man, I have wasted so much time and so much of my life. And there was so much guilt and so much shame. And it discouraged me. But the Lord said, I can redeem that. And the idea was what Satan wanted to use to make me feel guilty and to weigh me down and to drown me in all that guilt and shame and embarrassment. God said, now, let's package that up and let's turn it into fuel. And so immediately uh, God opened doors. I don't have time to tell you about right now to go on a mission trip to Africa. Only my second time ever flying. (laughs) We got married in Jamaica. That was my first time flying. And, uh, And jokingly, I told the Lord, I'll do whatever you want. Just don't send me to Africa. And of course, the first thing he does is send me to Africa. four times a day for the next 18 days. I've never preached before. And I panicked. But anyway, and so uh, currently I am the pastor of a parachurch ministry called Acts 3. Uh, We run a thrift store in Savannah. That's our fundraiser for our ministry. Um, We plant churches. I do pastor training, leader training, evangelist training. I teach apologetics. I teach Christians how to speak to Muslims. I've been to Pakistan. I've been to India. I've been to Dubai. I've been to places like that. Um, We started an orphanage, and we have a 10,000-square-foot orphanage. We do feeding programs and blah, blah, blah. Um, And But the point in all that is going to come into play in this message tonight because I can relate to this story in Thyatira where it feels like for the last 23, 24 years of being saved, 
that we've been doing more and more work and more and more work and more and more fruit. We've planted almost 200 churches now. We've trained tens of thousands of pastors. We've fed all these kids and given out all this medicine and blah, 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 blah. But I, and even in, in, the, in this challenge for teaching this tonight and, and answering the ultimate question of, you know, what would the Lord say to Mountain View? I'm like, well, first of all, I just found out what he would say to me. And so there was a lot of personal relation for me, pers- you know, in, in this letter. So anyway, so that's enough for now about me. But let's go ahead and we're going to just read the passage in its entirety. I'll open us in prayer and then we're going to dive in. So if you've got your sheet, you can read along. And so it says, And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them (coughs) with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you again, Lord, just for this evening, Lord, for this time of worship and fellowship, Lord God, and Lord, for establishing and raising up a Mountain View, Lord, a church that wants to teach your word, Lord God, just go through it and dive in bit by bit and morsel by morsel, Father. And Lord, um, this evening, Father, we just want you to be glorified, Father. We want to know what you say collectively, Lord God, to this church in Thyatira, Lord, and how we can apply that to this church, Lord, today here at Mountain View that we're a part of, Lord, and, and even to us as individuals, Lord. Father, be glorified, Lord, and know that we love you, and we're just thankful, Lord, for your presence in this place this evening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in, in my studies, in my time uh, going through the scriptures, what I have found, what, what works for me is like um, the analogy of a boat with an anchor. And so a lot of times we want to just pick out a passage, maybe do some honey dipping, and just read something out of context and say, okay, what does this mean to me? And we might get it right. Some things are pretty easy. Thou shalt not kill was pretty plain right? But a lot of other things are a little more complicated than that. And so if you think about a boat, if you take an anchor and you set that anchor properly, that boat can only move so far, 360 degrees, as that that chain or that rope will let it. Does that make sense? And so if the first thing we do, if we can dive into the scriptures and 
get a little bit better understanding of the culture and what's being said and who's saying it and who are the original hearers, that's like establishing that anchor and setting it firmly in the bottom of the, the body of water, whatever it is. And then from there, then we can decide now we know what it meant originally. Now, how can we apply without error to us today? Does that make sense? A lot of times, if we just decide to take the boat wherever we want it, we can make any scripture mean anything we want to. Satan did that when he was testing Christ, and, and we know a lot of cults out there that do exactly the same thing. They misuse and they misquote. And so that's what we want to do tonight is we're going to look at a little more about what Christ was saying to these to this original church, look at some of the culture and ideas behind it, and then once we establish that, then we can decide what it means to us today. Fair enough? Now, another thing I think that's necessary is I, I think we have to talk about just for a really quick second about the word covenant, okay? So, you know, the Old Testament is God's Old Covenant. The New Testament is God's New Covenant. And a, a very simple definition is a covenant is establishing a relationship that does not exist in nature, okay? Our children are born into a covenant with us. There's no covenant needed. The two most common types of covenants we think about, you know, number one are marriage, you know, where we have to stand before God and witnesses and we have to swear vows and, you know, and so on and so forth. And that's establishing a relationship that does not exist in nature, or maybe down in some parts of the world, but <laughs> maybe there's, there's some siblings being married or whatever. But. And then the other thing we think about is a, a neighborhood covenant where you're told how high your grass has to be and how much you have to edge your lawn and what kind of vehicles you can drive. And it establishes rules for how you can relate to your neighbor, right? And so because you and I are, were born into sin, God had to take a first step to offer us a covenant relationship with him. And under the New Testament covenant, there are rules and there are things and there are guidelines of how we should behave in. And this letter is what's called an epistle, and that's what these seven church letters are. And an epistle is an occasional letter. It's written by a specific author to a specific audience because of a specific occasion, okay? And if we were to go, and this is a lot of stuff, and I know it's all over the place, but just bear with me. In the Old Testament, God established several offices. Right? He had judges, he had priests, he had kings, and he had prophets. In the New Testament, we're reading about in Ephesians, God had apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. What is the only office that overlaps in both? What word? What office did that? Prophet. Okay. Now, Strictly speaking, a prophet's job was not to interpret the future and say, I predict in 2045 this is what's going to happen. The job of a biblical prophet was basically that of a covenant enforcer, almost like a covenant police officer. And their job was to hear the word of God and then go to God's people and to warn them from him and say, this is your sin. If you repent, then these are the blessings that you're going to inherit. This is the good things that you can expect. If you don't repent, this is the curse. This is the destruction. This is the turmoil. This is the tribulation that you can expect. Okay? And so these two little 
basic things there, this idea of a covenant and this idea of, you know, this covenant enforcement just to kind of help us understand what's going on here. This is not written to unbelievers. This is actually written to believers. Amen? Very good. All right, so we'll start off in the first verse. So in verse 18, it says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and who, whose feet are like burnished bronze. So first of all, you know, each of the church letters, Jesus opens a little bit differently, describing himself with a different name. The book of Revelation has more titles of Christ than any other book in the New Testament. There's 24 different ones. This is the only mention of Christ as the Son of God in all of Revelation. And that's significant. And so, while we don't know exactly spelled out here for us why that is, just knowing the culture, what was going on in Thyatira, Apollos was one of the most popular deities there. And he was supposed to be the son of Zeus, the son of God. And so what you see a lot of times in these letters to these churches and also into any prophetical writings, there is always God trying to say, you've got to counterfeit, because that's all Satan can do is counterfeit. And let me remind you of who and what the real is. And so I believe that's why he identifies himself as the son of God here, is to counteract this idea of what they believe there in these cultic worshiping things. The next thing you see there, the two things I want to talk about here is when he says this idea of <clears throat> the Son of God who has the eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And this also goes back to Revelation 1 where he's described very similarly. And usually this idea of him having these eyes of fire means that uh, God has this penetrating gaze. There's nothing that can be hid from his eyes. There's nowhere we can go on this planet, no depth, no height, no anywhere that we can hide or do things in secret that Christ doesn't know. And even though he may, we may have one action on the outside, he's able to know the thoughts and the intentions of our heart and the real motivation of what's behind what we did. Not just what we did, but the real reason of why we did it. And you see this in this idea of these flaming fire. And there's all kind of speculation about what this idea of his feet being like burnished bronze. But again, going back to the culture of that day, one of these uh, guilds that was in Thyatira were these metal workers. And one thing that they would do is they actually produced the, 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 the bronze for the military there, the militia there in Thyatira. And so some see in this in these brazen feet, these polished bronze, this idea that Jesus came the first time as a sacrificial lamb. Next time he's coming back as judge. He's coming back as the king of kings and the lord of lords, and he will execute judgment. And there are some things that just, maybe you're this way, maybe you're not, but there's some things that just like, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard, you know, um, years ago, we had a missionary from California that wanted to move to our orphanage in Africa to oversee the school over there for our orphans. And there was just, he had just this very lackadaisical, very casual way that she talked about Christ. 
You know, just like that Shula addressed his homeboy, you know, there was no reverence, there was no respect. That was one of the things to say that Christ is our friend, you know, it's one thing to say that, but it's just the way that she talked about him. There was no reverence for him whatsoever. It was just like, you're just a rubber stamp for my prayers. You were just a person who's giving me my get out of hell free card, and I'm kind of done with you, and you're over there. I recognize you, yeah, 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 but it's like, you know, it, there, was, there was no reverence. And that just, you know, it never sat well with me. She and I had a lot of conversations about that when we were in Africa for several weeks setting up the school. But, you know, this idea, um, I saw, um, it was, it, we had a men's class years ago at another church. And there was something about this idea of understanding the reverence of God. And this, uh, this man, one of our old elders at one of our churches, he printed out, a representation of basically on a piece of um, like construction, not construction paper, like a, what do you call them? Cardboard, the little signs you make, you know, whatever. Poster board, thank you. Okay. Um, and basically it showed a gigantic representation of how big the sun is and a tiny little speck of how big the earth is. And he's like, you know, imagine just the sun being Christ and us being this little you know, speck of a flea in front of something as bright and as glorious as the sun, how it would just burn you up. And, you know, and there was a reverence, you know, for him that he was trying to get across. And I think that's part of it. So whether it's from, you know, the, these fiery eyes at the top or these, these you know, these blazing, ma'am, <laughs> stomping boots, whether it's these, you know, these blazing, glowing, like they've been in a fire, you know, bronze shoes, it was just glorious head to toe you know, and awe-inspiring and a reverence there for Christ, right? And so this is the picture he's trying to paint already as he's setting the stage for what's coming. He is the real son of God. He has these eyes like fire. He can see right through you past what you're actually doing to actually even see the things that you're not doing. He knows it all, and he's got his stomping boots on, and they're ready for war, right? He's ready to do this battle. And so next we're going to get into this, this, this commendation and the compliments. And man, this is probably the longest list in the church letters. He says, I know your works, I know your love and your faith and your servants and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Man, I would like to hear that when I face Jesus, right? Man, it's like, your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. I mean, if you just started hearing that, it's like, man, this church is on fire. This church is going places. This church is where I want to go to church at. And it sounds like, what could he possibly find wrong with these eyes of fire, right? And what is he going to do with these stomping boots and these brazen shoes? And if we go through this, in the Greek, this idea, you know, of this work, it's actually it's a primary idea of doing something as like a, for a business or something you're doing as an occupation. It's what you're about. It's not just, okay, I'm going to go do a few things because Pastor Mike said to go do them. It's not that. This is like, this is what I'm about, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, you know, Paul says, you know, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, you know, that you may please the one who has enlisted you as a soldier. Right? 
And as Christians, we have all been enlisted as soldiers. And so we should be about our Father's business, just like when, when Mary and Joseph lost Jesus, where was he? He was at the temple. And he's like, didn't you know it'd be about my Father's business? How did you not know this? You're my mom, come on. And this is what a believer is supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be engaged in the occupation of doing the works of our God. Be in the hands and feet of Jesus. And they were doing this, right? And if you keep going, he goes on and he says that this idea of love. So here's the funny thing. So, you know, there's different words for love in the Greek. And this is agape. And this is that sacrificial, God-like love. It's not just a friendly love. It is the agape love. It's only used twice in the book of Revelation. And ironically, it's used, you know, and there's a lot of comparing and contrasting between this church and the church at Ephesus, where they had lost their first agape love. He's saying, man, you guys got the agape. You guys are loving sacrificially. You're loving like Jesus loved. You're loving you know, like you're supposed to be loving. And it's increasing. Man, you guys are really great. And like I said, they had lost it. They were doing better and better at loving people, this agape, godly love of people. And this idea of uh, faith is obviously this idea of their conviction that no matter what was coming, no matter what persecution was time, they knew that they knew that they knew that their foundation they were standing on was faith in Christ and Christ alone. And this idea of service, this word service in the Greek is where we get the, the name for deacons at. And so again, this wasn't just works, works. This was service work. They were taking care of people. They were meeting needs. They were having all things in common. They were serving, not just working, but serving, serving. And then the final thing is he praises their patient endurance, right? And this, in the King James, it actually uses this idea of uh, long-suffering. And so, again, this seems to be like the greatest report card that any church could possibly ask for, and it seems like there's almost nothing left for Christ to find fault with, and yet he does. And I'm going to do my very, very level best not to get tripped up on one word, but i got to tell you, uh, for all the times I've studied Revelation, this time, out of about the 250 words in this church letter, I could not get one word off of my mind the whole entire time since Mike asked me to do this church. And we'll come to that in just a minute, but I'm going to try to move past it and not get stuck on it just yet. Okay, so we've gone over the positives and all this, you know, all this compliments and commending them. Verse 20 says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, um, I learned years ago that when I first as a new believer, when I would study the scriptures, I would sit down with my Bible, and I would pick a commentary, and I would, and I would usually read the Bible, not even think about it, and then just open the commentary, and whatever commentary I read, that became my opinion about what that verse said, or what that passage said, right? And maybe that's okay, but what I came to later on to realize is that I needed to first read it for myself, 
so that I could see, okay, Lord, what are you speaking to me about this? Not changing the meaning again. I've got to establish that anchor. And I'm glad I did that because the one word that stuck out to me, I've read probably 19 commentaries on this, on this church, and not one of them even mentioned this word. And you know what the word is in that passage? It's the word tolerate. You tolerate this woman, Jezebel, to teach this cult stuff and to seduce people, and you'll tolerate it. And man, that, that, it's still eating me up. And so here's the picture I want to paint for you. And I got thinking about this. You know, the, from the best of my memory, the second question asked in Scripture, right? I guess maybe, maybe it's the third. But Cain, you know, when God's asking, you know, Cain, you know, where's Abel, your brother? What did Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? As believers, what's the answer to that question? Yes. You know, uh, I hated history in, in school, in, you know, in college and high school and stuff. But when I got into seminary, I absolutely devoured it. I even took like five extra classes above my degree because I loved it so much. Not because I just love history, but because if you read the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, you can see all the constant errors that the church made. And since Satan can't tempt us with anything new, everything's just recycling. Everything is just repeating. And so there was a period called the monastic period. And that's talking about monks, monastics. And so the idea was, if you wanted to be super holy and super righteous, what you do is you go get your little copy of the scriptures, you go to a cave and you flog your flesh and you go jump in the briars and you crucify your flesh that way and you just work on your own personal holy righteousness and you just be you. And everybody else is everybody else's problem. That's, that's not a body, right? That's not a church. That's not, there's no community or fellowship in that, right? The Bible talks about that you and I should be trees of righteousness that others can eat from. That's our job. If we are branches plugged into the vine of Christ, that righteousness that we produce is not to just say, hey, look at all my good works, look at all my good deeds, look at all my good love, look at all my good patient endurance. No. It's to live and to love in such a way that others benefit from you. And these people, man, it's like, Oh my gosh, this is terrifying. They are so wrapped up in checking these spiritual boxes and making their pastor and making their elders and making their church proud and getting their church on the map because Thyatira was the least important of these seven cities. But man, they were going to show the rest of the world, Thyatira, well, we're in the house, man. We're doing it. We're, 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 we're rocking this Christian thing, Right? All the while is, hey, somebody over here, and they're teaching bad doctrine, and they're causing this person to stumble, and they're causing this person to stumble. They're causing this one to turn away from Christ. So what? I don't have time for them. Am I my brother's keeper? i got to keep doing me and working on my good works and keep working on my good deeds 
I got to build up my resume so when I die and get before Jesus, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, get on in here. They tolerated it. They tolerated this blasphemous lady, this Jezebel, to come in and to teach this heresy, these deep things of Satan, to pervert the masses, to steal the faith they had in Christ and to place it in something hollow and something fake. And they tolerated it. Is that eating y'all up or is it just me? Oh my gosh, I should have stopped before any of you drink, I think. So, anyway, so who is this Jezebel? So, in the Old Testament, of course, the reference there is Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. She was a Phoenician princess. She was not a Jew. And this woman, she ruled the kingdom through her husband. This woman was trying to kill every prophet of the true living God. She was trying to steal the heart of the kingdom to worship her false gods and her idols. And this woman was vicious. Man, you read the story about Elijah, and he's facing a guy off against 850 prophets of Baal. And he is bold as a lion, and he is fighting them on his knees, and he is winning, and he's victorious. And then they kill all those false prophets. Then he hears Jezebel's after me. He hightails it, takes off running, and just like, God, just take me home to die. I'm not afraid of 850 prophets. But man, Jezebel, just call me home, Lord. There's a lot of, not a lot, but there's some debate over who this Jezebel is. In the passage, when it says that you have, that you tolerate that woman, this idea that the word woman in the Greek, it can and oftentimes is used as wife. And when it says that woman, a lot of uh, the scholars think that it was like basically the, the pastor's or the church leader's wife and that he was allowing her to do this and that the church was allowing her to do this. We don't know whether it was a leader's wife or not the leader's wife. That's really irrelevant, but that's one of the ideas here. And this idea about Jezebel um, So the reason I want to talk about what this covenant was and this idea of the covenant enforcers, a lot of times in the Old Testament specifically, how did God refer to idol worship in a symbolic way? Adultery. That's what he called it. And even, even to the point to where he actually commanded to one of his own prophets, hey, I want you to go out and marry this lady Gomer, this prostitute, this woman of harlotry. I want you to marry her, and I want you to have kids with her. Why would he do that? In, in the King James, the word is similitude. And the idea is that God's like, you know what? I got a message for you to preach. But before you preach this message, I want you to feel it. I want you to experience it. I want you to know just a little minuscule amount of what you guys are doing to me. Because God had a whole entire nation that he had delivered from slavery in Egypt. He had parted the Red Sea. 
He rained down food from heaven from 40 years, right? I mean, he defeated nation after nation for these people. He did everything. Tell of the cloud by day to give them some shade. Tell of the sun by night, keep them warm, keep the animals away. And still, time after time after time, they committed adultery. So he's like, I want you to feel this before you preach it. I want you to live it and experience it so that when it comes out of your mouth, it's coming out with passion and realness and empathy because you know what I'm talking about. And the point of that is this. So what is this that Jezebel was doing? Was she just, the video talks about this, and I have no doubt that this was going on. So on the physical side, these trade guilds, these labor unions, each one of them would have had their own temples. They probably would have had their own deity. They would have had their own feasts. They would have had their own festivals. They would have had their own practices. And if you wanted to be a part of it, you had to participate. You had to eat the food that was openly sacrificed to idols. You had to maybe participate in some of the temple prostitutes or whatever else the other immorality might have been. And so I have no doubt that there was real fornication. There was real sexual immorality. But that same word that's translated as fornication or sexual morality, it literally means uncleanness. And symbolically, it can mean uncleanness in a covenant capacity, in a covenant relationship. The same way for the Old Testament believers, them worshiping false idols was a form of fornication or adultery and spiritual idolatry. So that definitely was, was on the table. Most definitely that was part of that as well. But I don't think that's, that's exactly it. Now, for, you know, for us today, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine this idea of having to bow down and give in to temple prostitutes and these trade guilds worshiping false idols. When... Um, Maybe about five or six years after I started going to Malawi, this country in Africa, um, they had just had their first president. Up until that time, they had a dictator. And this president, uh, he failed at his attempt to get a lifetime presidency, essentially. And so all he could do as a parting gift, essentially, was he was a Muslim, was he invited all these wealthy uh, Muslim people from other countries to come in, gave them free land and free business permits, and he ran all of, most of the, at that time, most of the businesses in the downtown areas and the big cities were Hindus from India. And he forced all of them out of the cities and gave all the best business plots to these Muslims. And so what it, what it forced, a lot of the laborers there, because up until that time it was mostly a, a Christian nation, a lot of the workers who would go to our churches and stuff, they were forced to worship as Muslims. Whenever the, you know, whenever the little mosque would play the little music and the little chanting, they'd be forced to bow down and pray five times a day and all these other things. And so they could relate to this probably more than you or I could. But nevertheless, there are still, there still are people and places and things that want to shut us up as believers and want us to compromise our faith and our walk with the Lord in our jobs today, be it, you know, um, 
our our stepbrother or brother step brother in law is the superintendent of schools in our old county near Savannah. And the things that they're having to teach and the things that they're being forced if they want government funding to go through and the way that they're training teachers today, the things that they have to teach, I mean, it goes completely in the face of what we believe as believers. And so there certainly is an application for that in our life. But again, I think it's more than just the compromise. And I think it's more than just the physical things. I think there's some spiritual things in there as well. I do want to come back to this word um, tolerating a little bit. We'll get into the application part, but because I could probably go on for six days on that. But So here's the funny thing. So that word tolerate in the Greek is found 13 times in the New Testament. Listen to the first two times it's used. In Matthew 24, 43, um, it says, But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have um, allowed his house to be broken up. And that word allowed is the same idea there of tolerating. Right? In Luke 4, 41, it says, And the devil also came out of many, crying out, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them did not allow them, same Greek word, no, to speak. And so most of us, except so for us men in here who are married and have families and you know, small kids or whatever, you know, we are not going to allow or tolerate somebody to break in our house and just say, yeah, come on in, take what you want, hurt who you want to. It's not going to happen, is it? We'll defend our own house. But should we not do the exact same thing or even more for, you know, the Lord's house spiritually? Okay, anyway, I'm going to have to move on a lot faster, I think. Um, so let's go on to the next week. And in verse 21, <coughs> he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. One of the most amazing things I think about God, and it's, it's probably one of the hardest things I wrestle with, is like, why would you give her time to repent? Look at all the damage she's doing, you know? And I don't know if you were like this, but there's times I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'd like to just, you know. It's probably a good thing I'm not in charge of you know, doling out grace and mercy because it'd probably be on short supply sometimes, unless it's me, of course. And that's the... My wife's like, amen. Um, I think a lot of times, and I, I have this discussion a lot with people who are struggling with faith, or is faith real, is God real, about why does God allow evil, or why doesn't he just, why didn't he just uh, kill Hitler in the womb, or you know, blah, 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 whatever. You know, and, and that's the amazing thing about God, is is that grace, and, and is that, and then, and it is that mercy. And Satan is a dog on a leash. He can go no farther than, than God allows. And the amazing thing about the Lord is that somehow, some way, he can give all 8 billion people free will and yet somehow work every decision, every outcome, every consequence together for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Right? That's what blows me away, is that somehow 
even in this Jezebel, God giving her time and time and time and time to repent. But then as I'm thinking in judgment about God, how could you do this? Then it's like, well, how are you tolerating this? Why are you allowing her to teach this? Why are you not stepping up? Why are you not doing this? And that's what I'm saying. This thing, it just, it, it hits home on so many different levels. But he gave her space to repent, and she would not do it. <clears throat> so let's listen to the consequences now of that. Verse 22 says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Does that seem a little harsh? It's like, man, thanks, Mike, for giving me this one. Um, I think I should probably have a picture maybe. But. So here's the idea, just breaking this down one at a time. What in the world is this sick bed that he's going to cast her into? What is that all about? And so this word that's translated as sick bed, it could mean a lot of things. One is it could mean what essentially is a casket. It's like a funeral bier, like where they would you know, take dead bodies through the streets on the way to the burial plot. So it could be like one of those like little deathbed stretchers. And sometimes, um, I've seen this even in, in countries like Malawi now today still, where there are people who are so sick that they're just, in Malawi, when they die and they get sick, they go home to their mother's village because that's traditionally where they get buried at. And so we've seen miracles in this, that people would go to their mom's house and lay on this, basically this sick bed, this deathbed, waiting to die. And this, what, this is what the Lord's doing here. First of all, it's important to note that it is Jesus himself who is casting her. And this is not a gently laying her down and carrying her down. This is a, a violent action. This is a casting down. This is a throwing down into this sickbed. And there's also, of course, this idea of, of, a, of some kind of a plague or some kind of a sickness or some kind of a disease. There's something in this. And so basically now that Jezebel, whoever this woman is, now that she has had her time to repent and she's had her time to repent, and she's had her time to repent, and she has just absolutely flat out refused, God says, that's it. Time's up. You've had your opportunity. And let's face it, if God gives you and I one chance to repent, that's more than we deserve. Amen? And so at that point in time, he says, I'm going to cast her into a sickbed. He's going to afflict her. And not only that, but he leaves her there. He doesn't just say, I'm going to strike her dead, but he leaves her there knowing that she is still going to be actively pursuing and trying to seduce believers. And he says, those who commit adultery with her, I will throw them into great tribulation. So all that's happening here is she is passing this baton down to the next person. Her time is up. Her opportunity for repentance is gone. And so now anybody else that she can seduce, anybody else that she can literally or figuratively get in bed with her, now she passes that curse down to them. And God says, okay, now you're on the clock. And they're going to have a space to repent. 
And what God's going to do, it sounds like it's harsh and that it's judgment, but I think it's actually grace and mercy when he says that he is going to basically add to them great tribulation. And a lot of times tribulation is not a punishment thing, but it is a a means to say, you know what, the, the way that I'm going, this way is not easy, this way is, doesn't feel right, I need to do a U-turn. I need to start heading back the other direction. There's a lot of trails around here in the mountains, and if you ever go to some of these parks, the park rangers or whoever does this, they don't trim the, the bushes and the weeds and the briars off the trail. You know why? They want you to stay on the path, Right? You know, if God's holding an umbrella over you and I, and we step out from under and get wet, whose fault is that? It's ours, and God's saying, hey, I'm over here, the umbrella's over here, you can come back. While you've got life and breath, you can come back. So he's going to inflict on them great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Now, there's a lot of controversy we could get into and normally I'd say cool but uh, we only have a few minutes I'm not going to do this but these are believers right these are people that are in the church they're bearing fruit these people are working their their tails off and they're bearing spiritual fruit and he's he's allowing them the opportunity to choose life death, blessing, cursing, heaven, hell. And God is not going to, lot of, a lot of believers will pray, Lord, I'm headed for this thing that's sin, but if you don't want me to have it, just take it away. No. The fact that you're even praying that, <laughs> whatever praying that tells you, God's already given you the sins and the conscience and the word to know not to go do this, right? And so sometimes there will be temptations that are going to be out there for us. But anyway, and so then finally he says, and I will strike her children dead. Now, again, I I don't take this to mean physical children. I think the idea of this is that she represents whatever this satanic, godless, faithless belief system is, these children of hers are her disciples, right? You and I, you and I as believers, we're supposed to be reproducing after our kind. We're supposed to be reproducing other believers. Well, what do you think Satan does? He wants to produce more non-believers, right? He wants to produce more people going to hell. And so I believe that this is what this is, that those who choose, willingly choose to walk away from God and choose to get in this sick bed. It's not even an attractive bed. It is obviously a sick bed, a death coffin. There is nothing there but evil, darkness, wickedness, and filth. If they choose that, he's saying this is the ultimate, flat out, there is no gray area, I will destroy her children. Could it possibly be any more plain? Could it be any more scary? I don't think so. And yet, that's what he says. Next, in verse 23, 
this again is one of those amazing things about God is that we as human beings, we all think that life is just about me. And all we interpret things based on is how it affects me. We don't see the bigger ripple effects. We don't see the bigger picture. But this is what he says after that horrible, tough judgment. He says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and searches the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. In that situation, he's working in Jezebel's life, right? He gave her space to repent. Obviously, somebody had been at least warning her a little bit. He gave her time to repent. He throws her in the sick bed, so he's working in her life. He leaves her there, so people have a choice. Life, death, right? Blessing, cursing. And so the people who fall for that, he's working in their life. And then there's going to be this horrible judgment that's going to come. And it's there so that everybody can see as a byword, as a warning, as a big blinking sign. Judgment is coming. Judgment is real. God means what he says. There's, there is there is. There is a covenant that must be lived within, right? All throughout the Old Testament, God said the same thing. He said, you know what? I'm going to destroy this nation. I'm going to destroy this town. And I'm going to heap it up like these big stones. And when people pass by, they're going to say that the great God did this to these people because of this. And you see this in the book of Acts in, in uh, chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, at this point in time, everybody is so grateful to this God who has forgiven them and made this new covenant and after 400 years of silence have come to save the nation that they're selling their property and they've been having everything in common and then I don't have to have five pieces of property if Joe needs something or if Tom needs something we need to sell this and we need to give it away and all of a sudden Ananias and Sapphira come and they're like hey we sold our property and and Keith come over here, here here's all the money from the property what happened to them they dropped dead. They dropped dead on the spot. And it said, it's the funniest thing, because in Acts, Acts 5, it says that when that happened, and, and the whole everybody heard about it, it says two things that seemed to be opposite. It said, and when that happened, that nobody else joined themselves to the church for fear. But it still says that yet day by day, more and more were added to the church who were going to be saved. And so what that means is that kept the fakers out. That kept the pretenders out. That's what it did. When that judgment hit, people who were thinking about joining and wavering, they're like, yeah, I don't know if I'm really into this right now. I'm going to avoid this. But those who knew this was the only way, this was the only hope, this was the only truth, I'll take a chance. I'm all in. I'm not hiding anything. And so sometimes this great and drastic judgment, it still can be used for the glory of God and to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And man, that's hard to wrap our minds around, but it does. I don't know if it's Charles Spurgeon, I'm bad at the quotes, but somebody once wrote and, and said that you know, man is, is helped to live by remembering that he must die. You know, and sometimes when we go to funerals or sometimes when we see these tragedies, 
it's a wake-up call, right? And let's face it, for all we want to judge God for all these really harsh judgments, again, the word that keeps hitting me is, you tolerated this. You could have stopped this. If you had talked to her, if you had gotten her faith, if you had gone to those church leaders, if you had laid hands on her, if you had prayed over her, if you guys had had some kind of a church discipline, something, you could have stopped this before it ever got to God's door. Amen? Okay, I'm sorry. You can keep going. Okay, let's move along. And so, verse 24 but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. There's still hope. Now, as far as what these deep things of Satan are, you know, Nobody's really sure. But, you know, what I think this is, is if we're, we're going to compare deep things to shallow things. Have you ever known somebody that, man, they're flirting with something and they're, they're playing with fire and you can see them headed for a cliff and you try to warn them and then the next thing you know, they're off the cliff. Has any of all ever felt sometimes that, man, I'm in too deep, there's just no hope? And, you know, I think this is, this is more than just somebody who's listening and thinking and contemplating and wrestling. This is somebody who just decides, you know what? I'm making a covenant with darkness. I'm going to make a covenant with this evil. I'm going to make a covenant with whatever this, this garbage, this sick, sick bed, whatever this Jezebel is. I want that. Right? And this is not just a, man, I just blew it, man, I just met. It's not, it's not that. This is somebody who just flat decides, I think I'm all in. And I believe that's what it's talking about, those who have not known these deep things of Satan. And in the Greek, this idea when he says, hold fast what you have until I come, this hold fast in the Greek, it means, it means holding on for dear life. Like if you were hanging off of a cliff and you only had one rope to hold on to, I mean, until your muscles gave out and you were just so fatigued you had no option, you know, you wouldn't look for something else to grab a hold of. You would hold on fast until the Lord came. That's what he's talking about there. This idea of, you know, holding fast. And in the last part, he says, to the one who conquers, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, there's... There's a lot to this that we could go into, but we're going to get into a lot of deep things as far as the millennial kingdom and everything else. <clears throat> but the thing that hits me, and again, this is going to be one of those sensitive doctrine things, and I want to walk the line on this, but, you know, 
in, in our church culture today, we like to focus more on just the promise of once saved, always saved, right? You say a prayer, truth is saved, you're done, nothing can ever happen to you. And we put the emphasis on the beginning. One little simple act and proof you're done. But all throughout Scripture, you see this idea to those who conquer, to those who endure to the end. The Lord is putting the emphasis on the ending. We all know in Scripture it says in the last days there's going to be a great, it says the end can't come until there's a great falling away first. And so there is this idea of separating out the wheat and the chaff. And now some could say, well, if they fall away, they weren't saved in the beginning. Regardless, the idea for you and I is regardless of what your doctrine is, our focus should not be on a decision I made, you know, 1, 5, 10, 20 years ago. Our focus should be on the Lord finishing this race and walking the walk until the day we die. Even the Apostle Paul said, you know what, all these other things I count as loss, and I'm going to keep on, you know, for the mark that is set before me. Not that we're working on a works-based righteousness, obviously, but the idea is that we need to be faithful until the very, very end. Amen? Okay, so if the Lord was writing a letter to Mountain View, what would it say? Now, um, I struggle with this part just because um, even though we've been here for, for about five years plus, maybe six, um, I don't have a lot of knowledge of a lot of things on the inside. But here's what I think um, the takeaway is for not only Mountain View, but I think for any church, okay? Uh, you know, the easy, low-hanging fruit, obviously, is this warning against compromise, right? That there will always be people, places, things, ideas, whatever, who, are, who or that are going to try and seduce us into giving our loyalty, our affection, and our time to them rather than Christ. Amen? Even a ministry can be an idol, right? But, you know, the, the thing for me personally, the, going back to that, that tolerate again, that letter did not say it was written to the pastor of the church or to the elders of the church or to the deacons of the church. It was written to everybody in that church. And... I'm a pastor, and I've, I've, we've, we've planted 200 churches. I've ran a church. I've been a youth pastor, associate pastor, all these other things. And I'm telling you from the inside and from the outside, pastors today are, are some of the quickest people in a field to get burned out really quickly. I do appreciate Mountain View giving you guys a month break after five years. I do appreciate that. But one of the reasons for that burnout a lot of times is that it's like an upside-down pyramid. And you know what? You get paid to be the pastor, so you're going to have to go to all the hospitals, do all the hospital visits. Everybody who fills out a business card, you're going to have to go do. Anybody who has marital problems, like my wife, you're going to have to go talk to her. <laughs> she only has one marital problem. You know, you got to do all of that. And on top of that, if anybody in this church has bad doctrine, you better deal with it. You're going to fight the battles. You're going to defend all of us. You do the work. We're going to come on Sundays. We're going to sit at your feet, listen to you. We're going to write our check, and we're done. But you know what? 
It is my responsibility to know this inside and out. It is your responsibility, and as pretty as you are, it's your responsibility, young ladies, right? And each and every one of us have this responsibility, like Jude 3 says, that it that it's written that we, you know, that we should be contending for the faith that has once and all been handed down to the saints. Not just to the pastors, not just to the church leaders. It's up to all of us. You know, but this church in Thyatira was like, I know that she's preaching a heresy, but let's just love her and let's just ignore her. And let's just tolerate her. She'll get over it eventually. I know she's already sucked all these other people away from the faith, but so what? Let's just love her. Bless her heart. Right? It is our responsibility in love not to tolerate her. It is our responsibility to be so filled up with this that all the burden is not on Mike and Justin and P. All of us are carrying this burden. His job and the other pastor's job, their job is to equip us for every good work. It's like having a college professor say, hey, you've taught me well for four years, now go do my job for me. That doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. We need to know this. You know, and I used to look at a lot of statistics, but, you know, but the one that stuck out probably the most, and I don't know the exact number, but it was like over 90% of professing believers, evangelicals, never touch their Bible outside of church. Never touch it. And, you know, and that's sad. Do you agree with that? And my wife and I, we've only been a part of three churches in our time of being saved. And it's been a double-edged sword that all three, we have had very good expositional people. And I will say, not just because you're, but by far you are our favorite. Yes. But the double-edged sword of that is that, man, you know what? Pastor Mike is so good at delivering those sermons. I don't need to study myself because, man, he spoon-feeds me. I can digest it, and it tastes good. And, man, I can let him do all the work. You see? And, 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 and like I said, I never teach anything that God has not worn me out over. And that's why, so this is, this is for me as well, you know, so busy doing church work and so busy doing ministry work that I have forgotten about this. Do you have a question?
I agree. The, the danger is, and um, I got two minutes, I guess, but in, in our church, uh, in our county, at, uh, we used to live in Savannah, and um, in one year, just one year, the four largest churches in our county, each one of them with over a thousand people on Sundays, in one year, all four pastors fell. One year. And I'm telling you, I, I know three of them. And in that one year, there was an active demonic attack on all of those churches in a lot of ways you would not ever believe. And so I agree 100% of everything you said. But the danger is the, the better and the bigger and the more fruit that Mountain View starts bearing, we will become a target if we're not already. And when it, if, if we as a body are not ready and we're not feeding ourselves at home and we're not taking opportunities that the church provides for the Bible studies and the small groups and the men's groups and the ladies groups and the fellowship and the accountability, then are we going to be the Thyatira in a year or two years and are we going to be the ones who are tolerating something? You see? And so that's the thing. Is I think we need to make sure that we're ready and that we make their job much easier so that they can remain spiritually healthy, physically healthy, and have healthy families as well. Anything you want to add, brother?
And I had this conversation with somebody a while back. In our job interviews, and we interview people for our ministry, we give them this good person test to get to the gospel with them. And, but I bet you I've had this conversation a hundred times where I have talked to couples, uh, usually females, but uh, they're, they're in a relationship, they're professing believers, and they're living together with somebody unmarried. And she's like, well, I, I know that if I, am, if I embrace this truth and I know what you're saying is true and I know I shouldn't be part of this sexual immorality, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I love him. And maybe if I stay with him, you know, he's going to, it's like, if you love him and you confess that he's unsaved, and if he's unsaved, where does he end up? He ends up in hell. Well, how is that loving him? And the truth is, is that tolerating somebody's sin, we can't call that love. We can't call that unity. That's the wrong kind of unity. That's the wrong kind of yoking together. Now, it doesn't mean we go out there and, you know, start uh, blowing up an abortion clinic or something stupid like that. That's not what I'm talking about, the tolerating. But we ought to be able to love each other enough as brothers and sisters in Christ where we can speak into each other's life. My employees, I've got teenagers that work for me. They know that it doesn't matter how old I am, they'll make fast or whatever. Me as a professing believer, you as a professing believer, you have the right to call me out. You have the right to come to me and get in my face and say, you know what, I think you blew that. And several of them have. They've done just that. But we get sometimes we get too sensitive and we're too afraid. And um, real quick story: one of those poor pastors who had fallen, something got back around to me. And this man, I'd met him several times at different functions and different events, um, you know, evangelical events around. And we knew each other by faith only. Something came to my attention, and for about two weeks. God put it on my heart. I needed to call that man and take him to lunch, and I needed to confront him about what I was hearing. This man was the pastor of the largest church in our county. He was the head of the association for that church denomination, like the whole entire like Savannah area. This man had all the power to destroy our ministry if he wanted to, and I was terrified for two weeks. Finally, I'm like, okay, Lord, I called him up and said, hey, you know, he knew me by name. I said, can I, can I buy you lunch? I got there 20 minutes early to make sure I had time to quit shaking before I talked to him. And I got there, and he was already there, and he was shaking. And he was about 10 years older than I was. At the time, I was still 10 years older. But when I finally said, I guess you're asking, wondering why I invited you here. He said, yeah, I've been terrified since you asked me last week. And I told him. And I was so relieved that man he started crying, and he thanked me. And he said, you know, he said, in my denomination, he said, I've, he had like seven associate pastors under him. He said, I have nobody for accountability. He said, I have nobody I can go to for prayer because anything I tell them, they're going to go tell somebody else because they want my job or they want my position in their denomination. And he said, so I so appreciate you having the courage to come to me and the love to come to me and share this with me. You know, now eventually he still fell a few months later, but this man had nobody. And he felt alone as a pastor of the largest church, probably about 2,000 people in his church in that, in, that, in that county of ours. And he felt alone. But he actually appreciated having somebody come to him and just share with him. 
And so, you know, that's one of those things that we have to make ourselves available to do. Yes, sir.